Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing special guest Anna Bell. Anna is an instructor in the Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Department at MIT, where she teaches the popular course Introduction to Computer Science and Programming Using Python, as well as Introduction to Computational Thinking and Data Science. You can follow her on Twitter at AnnaBellPhD, and that's Anna with one N, and check out her website at mit.edu slash tilde Annabelle. Anna is the author of a nearly seven-hour-long video course produced by Manning Publications called Get Programming with Python in Motion. In the course, which is designed to be beginner-friendly, you'll get an introduction to the world of computer programming through the Python programming language, which is very popular not only with beginners in programming, but people who instruct beginners in programming. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Anna is also the author of the Manning book, Get Programming, Learn to Code with Python. The book is an easy-to-follow introduction for people who've never programmed before and helps them learn their first programming language. In this interview, we're going to talk about Anna's background and career, professional interests, her various courses, both online and in person, and her book. And at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as a creator of courses and, of course, a book. I'm also very pleased to mention that to help promote this interview, Manning has provided us with a discount code for 40% off all Manning products that listeners to this podcast can enter when you're making a purchase at manning.com. At checkout, just enter the code PODMATTER19, 19 being the numbers 19, in the little box you'll see at the point of purchase to get this great discount. Manning has also provided us with five single-use codes that you, can, that you can use to get Anna's video course for free. Rather than go on reading out the codes here, we'll paste them in at the end of the transcription of this episode on the LeanPub website, which you can race to uh, and find on the uh, leanpub.com website and looking for the podcast link at the top of the page. So thank you, Anna, for listening to that intro and for being on the Front Matter podcast. Yes, thank you for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computer science and engineering. Sure. So I was born in Romania, and uh, my family moved to Vancouver, Canada shortly after the revolution, so about 1995. And uh, my father was an electrical engineer, and so of course we had computers in the house um, I started learning about computers at a very young age, so I disassembled and rebuilt a computer with my dad when I was about 12, and then, you know, on that same computer, uh, he started teaching myself and my sister Java. Um, I guess my parents stressed going as far as we could with education, so I did my undergrad at the University of British Columbia, and I did it in computer engineering, and, uh, you know, I got a, uh, I got, uh, uh, an exposure to programming there, as well as building, you know, actual machines, robots, things like that. But I became interested in biology um, towards the end of my undergrad. And so I really wanted to do a PhD in computational biology. So I had applied to a bunch of uh, a bunch of computational biology PhD programs, but my biology background wasn't uh, a very extensive. So uh, I only got accepted to Princeton University for their computer science PhD program, so not computation biology. And, uh, and so there I did study computation biology, but in, a, in a sort of the computer science department. So because I didn't have a good grasp of biology at, the point, uh, at that point, it was kind of a rough time for me. So I, uh, I would apply machine learning algorithms to gene function prediction. That was my research. But, you know, the results I would get back, um, you know, machine learning algorithms give you back an, uh, a result. And I would have to kind of consult with my colleagues who, more bio, who knew more biology than I did about whether those results made sense or not. So I felt like I was leaning on other people a little bit too much. 
So, uh, you know, I, it didn't feel like a very independent uh, way of doing research. So at the same time in my uh, graduate, in graduate school, I also got a chance to TA for the intro computer science class. Um, and I really, really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun to teach programming to people who have never programmed before. And it was, it was very rewarding to kind of see them get something that they had struggled to get for, you know, for that entire week. Um, so I knew that I would, uh, I would go into teaching after I had finished my, uh, graduate studies. Thanks for that very much. Yeah. For that great explanation. I'm sure we'll get into a little bit, a little bit more of the details, but, um, before we move on, uh, one of the great joys of this podcast is that we get to interview authors from all around the world and who've been all around the world. And I saw on your LinkedIn profile when I was researching for this, that you speak Romanian, but I didn't know you were from Romania and, um, that you lived there before the revolution. Yes. Um, I have a friend, actually, who's from Romania. She's written extensively about her, her father's experience being imprisoned as a dissident in Romania um, and, you know, stories about burying the typewriter in the backyard during the day and then covering the windows at night so her mother and her father could type up revolutionary pamphlets. Wow. Things like that. And I was I was wondering if you if you if you have memories of of the revolution or even what life was like before a little and if you'd just be willing to talk about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, so I guess uh, I was born in 1986. Uh, the only thing I remember is I, I was probably, what, two or three at the time. Um, it was during the revolution, and I remember hearing, I guess, gunfire outside our window. And I was kind of, you know, peeking up, looking outside, and my mother telling me to get away from the window. So that's pretty much the only thing I remember. I think my parents did a pretty good job shielding shielding us from from that and how did your family make it to Canada? Um, they had applied for, I guess, the visa, and they got it through, I guess, um, I, I, I'm not sure, but I think they got the visa through, I guess, education, whatever education criteria were met at the time. And do you know why they picked Vancouver? I have no idea why they picked Vancouver. I think I, I can only guess... It's probably because we had, you know, one uh, one family there who we knew from from Romania who was who was in the area. Yeah, it's interesting. Often people um, don't necessarily have a lot of choice, even in uh, in where they move under circumstances like that. But I'm glad to hear yeah. that that your family knew somebody where they were going. Yeah, and I was I was pretty young, so I, I don't <laughs> I I yeah I don't know any of those details that well. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for sharing what you do remember. Yep. So yeah, moving on. So you, you decided to focus on on teaching instead of doing research, if I understand correctly. Yes, yes. Um, not that teaching doesn't involve a certain amount of research, of course. Yeah. Uh, and I, I saw from your CV that there's an explicit purpose behind your work creating online courses in particular. You write that integrating online learning with the conventional classroom for a more interactive and instant feedback driven experience is very important to you. And I was I want to sort of at the pedagogical or even theoretical level. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what it means to integrate online learning with the conventional classroom, because I think a lot of people, at least in the past, conventionally assumed that online and classroom learning were incompatible with each other. Uh, yeah, so I agree, but I think blended learning and uh, flipped classroom have become more common these days, and uh, they've become more common especially in computer science classes and especially in large computer science classes. Um, so this course, the course that I teach at MIT, is a very good example of why we had to move to a uh, 
to have a portion of our course online. So we had originally had maybe 100 students take the class. And then um, as the class became required for ECS students, um, we, we saw our, our enrollment go way up. And at that point, there's no way that we could grade, you know, a problem set every week from 400 students on, on paper or uh, manually. And there's no way we could grade all of their tests, you know, within a 10-hour period, uh, um, you know, even with a large staff working. So we, we kind of had to offer the students another way of submitting the assignments. So we moved to an online, uh, online learning platform. And so we use MITx for that. Uh, and um, we've and, and once we moved to online learning platform, we also uh, got the opportunity to show students other resources. So we have uh, videos that we had recorded, uh, you know, not myself, but another one of our instructors. And so students have the chance to see the videos kind of presented in somebody else's words. And, you know, if they don't understand the way I'm explaining something, maybe they'll understand the way somebody else is explaining something. And then we have a bunch more practice exercises offered online as well for them. And since this is intro class, you know, practice is the best way that they uh, that they can learn because programming is a skill that they need to kind of hone. And the flipped classroom that you mentioned, is that the model where you learn the like you sort of watch a video before the class and that's your preparation and then yes. when you're in the class you instead of sort of having a lecture you you discuss the the lecture that they've watched online already exactly yep that's the flip classroom we don't do that we use more of a blended learning experience but there are uh some classes at mit that do uh the flip classroom way and so you know in class you may discuss the video or you may do exercises together uh, in small groups things like that and is this something that students who come to MIT these days seem to be already familiar with, or is it something that they have to learn, this new, this blended classroom model? I think most have to learn it. Um, I think their first exposure is through the uh, classes that are more general institute requirements, or like math, biology, physics, things like that. Um, and then when they come to us, they'll, you know, they usually know what to do, or what the deal is. But I don't, I don't think many high schools offer that way of learning. Preparing for this interview, I watched uh, one of your lectures online. And by the way, you can find the lectures for these courses, for some of the, at least one of these courses on our, from one year uh, on, on iTunes. Uh, and they're really good. And I was just wondering if you wanted to give our audience a bit of a sense of how you teach and what you teach, if you could talk a little bit about what computers do. Mm-hmm. In, in the way you would to, to, to a sort of class of freshmen. If you could actually explain like what computers do. Imagine, oh. imagine I don't know. So, uh, so a computer is just a machine. It, uh, it can be programmed to follow a set of instructions. And the instructions are just a recipe, uh, also known as an algorithm in computer science world. And uh, whatever you type to the computer, whatever instructions you type to the computer, the computer will execute. So it'll run line by line. And whatever you tell it to do, it will just do it. So it can't really infer anything other than what lines of code it has. Is that okay? Yeah, no, that's that's, okay. that's great. That's great. Okay. Uh, it's it's funny because we're we're around computers all the time and we use them all the time nowadays. But actually, stepping back and thinking, what is this thing and what does it do and how does it work is something that we often rarely do. 
yeah. including those of us who work with computers all the time. Uh, and you can kind of get lost in the sophisticated interface and the sort of functional level at which you're interacting with it. But getting down to the sort of fundamental description of what these devices are is actually a really useful exercise, even for people who aren't beginners, I think. And I was wondering, um, what level of computer literacy do students have when they come into your classroom? And I don't mean about programming, but I mean about like what computers are. So I think most students uh, these days have used a computer. They uh, We require students to have a laptop when they come into the class, and mo- and all of them do. Um, I think they've, you know, they, they've used Excel, probably. They know what a file system is. They know how to organize files. Um, but I don't think many have programmed before. We actually test, uh, we actually allow students to test out of our course before each semester. And we... Uh, for the whole year, we test out about 400 students. So that's 400 people who would have been, I guess, ringers in the class, right? right? <laughs> um, so what we've, uh, so what we're left with in in the actual taking the actual class is students who actually have no programming experience, um, and are curious, or it's, you know, the course is required for their major, or uh, they do have some programming experience, right? But it's in another language. They didn't get a chance to learn the Python syntax. They didn't, you know pass the exam to test out of it. Um, yeah, so we have, I, I think largely we have those two groups of students in the class. Uh, my next question for you is, is a version of one that comes up on almost every interview that I do with people who've written technical books or made technical courses. Uh, and I hope it's not controversial asking you this, but um, do you think that it is how do I let me let me put this question the way I would put it to a to a sort of conventional lean pop author who's written a book about programming if they if they'd studied computer science at school formally and this might be you know going back all the way to you know the 60s all the way up to this decade I'll ask them if you were starting out again now to pursue a career in software engineering would you take a full computer science course at university again given given all of the resources available now and do you think the there's an answer to that question or that that situation will change in the next 10 years? Yeah, that is a good question. Um, You're right. Uh, There are a lot of free resources these days for any language you want to learn, right? Um, I guess I can speak to this particular course. I think the answer is yes, I would take a university programming course. And I can tell you what makes the MIT course different, I guess, than just learning programming on online. So um, the this course has been is, is mostly a course about computer science and introducing students to all of computer science uh, at a very broad level. It just so happens that you have to learn programming along the way. I think that's probably the motto of the course. Um, so in lecture two, I feel like students are introduced to an algorithm, the bisection search algorithm, um, which is easy to grasp in your mind, right? We do this thing in class where I tell a student to think of a number between one and 20, and then, uh, I can guess it in, you know, like three or four tries and you just kind of pick the point halfway and then you ask them if it's higher than or, or, or less, less than, than the number that I choose. Right. Right. So it's kind of an easy it's an easy algorithm to grasp. But um, in the first problem set, then we ask students to put that into code. And a lot of students have trouble with that. Um, 
for two reasons. One is because now you have to think of the concepts that you've learned, right? And to kind of translate the English thing that I'm asking you into some sort of pseudo code, be like, I need a loop here, I need a variable here, I need to reinitialize variables here, stuff like that. And then the other thing they need to learn, they need to know is the actual syntax, right? Like, what is the syntax for a while loop? What is the syntax for like changing a variable, things like that. So, um, so this particular course, I think, does a really good job of teaching students the, the sort of really important concepts in, in computer science, and you also learn programming along the way. Um, we also teach them um, the, the efficiency of programs, so that's you know, big O notation. Uh, that's towards the end uh, of the class, which is, I don't think, something that is typically taught in intro classes. So I think if you were to look for resources online that taught you these separate things, right, algorithms, big O notation, programming, you could find them. But I think this particular course does a good job of kind of blending that together in a coherent, coherent way. And I think many computer science courses do try to do that, right? One thing I found really interesting about your your course is that you, in, in the introduction to it, you say this is going to move at a fast pace and it's going to be difficult yes. um, to keep up. And when I was listening to that, I was thinking, you know, this this is all, you know, speculation, right? But that just being in an environment where you're being openly challenged like that is something that's probably difficult to replicate online. Yeah, um, we do try to replicate it through the edX version of these courses. So you can take the exact same courses that MIT students take on edX. Uh, it's the same problem sets, the same exams, the same lectures, and uh, just a little bit slower pace. But um, I think students from all around the world who take the, the edX version of this, these courses at MIT kind of see that they are also challenged in the same way that MIT students are challenged. And we are upfront about that as well in the edX version of the course. Um, and, you know, I read the forums, sometimes the discussion forums, and people either love being challenged or they hate being challenged. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it, uh, and it can depend on the type of challenge that it is and the way the person mm -hmm. perceives it, regardless of the way it's presented. Um, yeah. Very, very challenging. Um, uh, and so you've mentioned edX. That's something I wanted to talk to you about. So you've been part of, of creating these massively open online courses on edX uh, or MOOCs. Um, and what, at least one of your courses has attracted over a million students. Yes. Do you know what drove the success of that course in attracting so many students? I think it's an intro computer science course, and it's offered exactly as MIT students take it. I think those two th things are, uh, are are a big part of the success. And I have a, an MIT-specific question, which is, uh, what what's MIT OpenCourseWare? Yes, so MIT core. Uh, sorry, yes, so MIT OpenCourseWare is. Um, I guess a subdivision of the Office of Digital Learning at MIT where uh, an instructor who's teaching a course at MIT can ask to have their lectures recorded for a particular semester. And then those lectures, the problem sets for that semester, the exams for that semester are then available to anybody for free if they want to watch or you know they want to do the work. And are you aware 
not that you have to talk about controversies at your institution, but um, was it was it controversial getting setting up a program for providing free content for such an exclusive from such an exclusive university to the whole world, or was this something that just kind of came came naturally to the mission? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think open courseware has been around for a really long time, at least maybe I don't know early 2000s, and I think it's uh, it's always been MIT's mission to make education available freely. And I think OpenCourseWare was a, was a big part of that. I actually remember in my undergrad kind of looking at OpenCourseWare for some courses that I was taking at uh, UBC. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's great to hear that it's been, it's been such success and actually had such an influence on people, the intended influence, it appears, as well. Yeah. Um, moving on uh, more specifically to the subject of your courses and your book, one question I have is, why is Python so popular as a language for introducing people to computer programming at the college level? Yeah, so I think, yeah, a lot of universities are moving to Python. Um, I think at its core, Python is just really simple to start with. So uh, I started with Java and, um, you know, in Java, you need some uh, integrated development environment, usually Eclipse, right? You need some like little startup code before you actually get to writing the actual code to do what you want it to do. But Python kind of does away with all that. So if you're a pure beginner, right, if you have to type in, you know, in Java, like class main, whatever, I don't even remember exactly what it is. It's kind of confusing, right? If that's the first thing that you're writing and you're, and you're trying to, to type up, but in Python, you just type the code and then you're good to go. Right. Um, so, you know, it does away with extraneous files. There's no setup code, no cleanup code. It kind of just works. It's also very, uh, intuitive. It's clean, kind of English like, uh, keywords just make sense. So, and, and I guess the most important thing is you don't need to know object types to get started with, with Python. Um, so I remember when I learned Java, you know, one of the lectures was on declaring types and you always had to tell, you know, the, the compiler what type of thing that you wanted to work with and you don't need to do that in Python. So, yeah. I'm curious when, when writing a beginner book or creating a, a beginner's course, uh, how do you decide what to keep out? And not talk about because it must be very yeah. tempting to expand the scope or, or go into detail for these things that you know so well yourself. Yeah. So, I mean, believe me, when I first started writing, there were so many things that I wanted to include. But uh, and one of the first thing that I uh, the first things that I wrote was this uh, program to solve a maze. So like if you were given a maze with like stars to make the walls and, you know, spaces to make things like how could you like what were the steps you need to, to do to get out of the maze? And I thought it was really cool. But I in the end, I ended up taking it. I t but in the end, I took it out because it wasn't really getting at what I wanted people to get out of a uh, out of this intro course. So. You know, I feel like I was already making assumptions for things that the readers would know that they didn't know at the time. Um, so uh, I tried to explain things in very grave detail, like why I'm doing certain things. Um, so in the end, I think I just focused on introducing concepts that could be transferable to any other language. 
right? So loops, uh, branching, uh, classes, but not inheritance, functions, things like that. Um, so. And have your have your inter- I'm curious have your interactions over the years with your students for your c- classroom courses affected your decisions about what to include you know in your in sort of your next project? Yes, they have. So uh, yeah, I've, I you know I talked with many students in my office hours, and uh, there were things that we did in our on campus course that students were just fundamentally confused about. And, you know, I would have to explain it in my office uh, in my office hours. And so I wanted this book to be truly for beginners and, of course, the video course for beginners, uh, as, you know, as in if you have never seen a variable before, I'm not going to assume you know what it is. Like this is what a variable is supposed to do. It stores data, things like that. You can manipulate it. So I, I really tried to get down to the basics, assuming absolutely no prior knowledge of, of programming ideas at all. Specifically on the subject of your Manning course, Get Programming with Python in Motion. Just moving on to the next part of the interview, I think a lot of people on the outside of processes like this often wonder how things work behind the scenes. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, how the course got started. Uh, you know, did Manning approach you and what the process was like? Did they have you audition? Did they train you in how to do videos, things like that? Yeah, so it all started with uh, an email from Manning. Um, at the time, I was, I think, at MIT for two years or so. And I was on the edX forums, answering people's questions, things like that. And the email from Manning basically said, um, you know, we've noticed that you kind of run this online course and we've liked your replies to people who, you know, had questions about basic programming concepts. Would you like to write a book on that for us? And I was very excited because I had kind of always thought about doing that, but never did. And it just felt like a really good match. So, um, you know, then I, I got set up with an, with an editor, things like that. And I would, you know, I, I just, I wrote the book within about a year. Um, so, oh, so the book came first. Oh uh, yeah. Sorry. The, yes, exactly. The book came first. And then, um, the challenge of writing the book, I think the hardest part about writing the book was just to try to translate kind of the mechanics of explaining something using static images. So, you know, like a kind of a sequence of events, because the computer works in a sequence of steps. So just kind of translating those sequence of steps into images was very hard for me. And then when I got the opportunity to kind of write the, uh, to record the video course, which was based on the book, it, if it, that went a lot smoother because I could use animations and I, you know, everything that I kind of had in mind that I was trying to put into static images just flowed. Oh, that's really interesting. So you found the videos easier than the than the writing. Yes, yes, very much. And um, did you did you sort of you know get flown to a Manning production center, or did they provide you with any equipment or training or anything like that? They provided me with the equipment. So for the book, there was no equipment. Uh, for the videos, there was. Uh, they gave me a microphone, and they uh, provided me with some uh, softwares that I could use. And I ended up doing the editing myself. So I would record my, by myself. I would do the editing by myself. And it was exciting to do the editing at first. Um, but then after, I don't know, the, the 20th recording, it got a little bit tedious. Uh, I have never edited before. So it was a new experience for me. I had to learn all the, you know, the tricks of the trade. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I've, I've, I've gone through that same process myself in the past. And uh, the the um, alternating having fun and shouting at the computer screen 
uh, <laughs> is a familiar experience. Uh, yes. Um, uh, it's actually very, a very interesting question at a high level of kind of um, online instruction, the differences between books and courses. I believe O'Reilly actually bought it, might have been a Canadian video course production company years ago, signaling a pivot, I, I, at least as I interpreted it and recall or recall my interpretation at the time as a pivot away from, from books as a way of delivering mm -hmm. instruction in, in technical issues. But at the same time, one thing, one thing we've encountered, we've got, you know, people who've published videos with Pluralsight and Udemy and edX and Coursera. One, one issue that's sort of emerged over the last few years in this relatively new space is I think the difficult difficulty of dealing with outdated videos versus outdated books. Yeah. Um, and my understanding from at least, and this is totally anecdotal, but from the people I've spoken with is that they'll have a huge success with a video that took a couple hundred hours to put together in some cases or a video course. And then a year later, it's outdated. Yeah. And they're like, oh my, was that, was that worth it? And, and there's this temptation to sort of reshoot it. But then you think, you know, you confront the fact that it's going to be a, probably going to be outdated in a year again. I imagine that's different with, with getting stuck, like with sort of beginners courses though. Yeah. I think I, in my opinion, I don't think this video or this course uh, suffers as much from that. Mostly because I do tend to focus on things that you know, are universal, the, the concepts themselves, as opposed to, you know, specific things about Python, list comprehension, stuff like that. So I, I think it is different in that respect. And because it is beginner, right, right, you, this is something that literally anybody could pick up and try to try to learn these concepts that are just so so basic for for programming. Uh, and my last question about about the, this process is uh, a lot of listeners to our podcast are self-published authors or aspiring self-published authors. But even if they're self-published authors already, they're often both categories of people are often aspiring conventionally published authors. And I was wondered, wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the experience. I mean, you said you got it done in about a year. Uh, I just, just, you know, sort of full disclosure or, or whatever. My co-founder, Peter, has written two books with Manning and had a wonderful experience doing that uh, back in the day. Did they put the sort of like screws to you to make sure you hit deadlines or was it was it a little bit looser than that? Yeah, it was. Um, I think Manning tends to publish books that are um, maybe on technologies that are happening right now. Uh, I don't know how they if they put the screws to those authors. But for me, I think there was no big rush to get this published. Um, I you know, I didn't meet my original intended deadlines at all. I was late by half a year or so. Um, and they didn't, you know, they didn't really mind. They just changed the dates on the spreadsheet and moved on. Um, it was, I mean, for myself, I think it, it took so much time because I have a family. I have two kids that I, you know, required my time. And so I was really just writing in the evenings you know, after coming home from work and dealing with students who didn't know Python, and then I have to write about Python. <laughs> um, and, uh, so I would, you know, write on week, uh, evenings and weekends, and that was that was my time to write. Yeah, that's that's great to hear. Um, just just for anyone worried about, I mean, one one of the there's a a wider issue of independence that sometimes people who are accustomed to self publishing have a preoccupation with. But you know, for anyone listening who's thinking of getting published by a conventional publisher, every single book editor 
in the world knows that writers never meet their deadlines. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so they, they will, will go into it expecting that with you. So uh, the last question I'd like to ask you is a version of the question I normally ask at the end of these podcasts, which is, um, we actually ourselves offer a platform creating, selling, and taking online courses or MOOCs. And uh, so the question that the form is going to take is a bit selfish, but in all your work creating these courses and delivering them to students, these online courses, is there one feature you wish you had that you haven't found anywhere? Or is there one big technological issue you wish MOOC platforms could solve? That's a good question. Um, huh. Yeah, I could, I could <laughs> prime the pump while you're thinking. Uh, yeah. you know, one of, one of our, our, our courses were developed uh, kind of, you know, our first customer was a team at Johns Hopkins University who'd sort of been involved with, I think it was the most successful MOOC in terms of, you know, student acquisition ever on data science at Coursera. And they pointed us down, you know, there's issues with, um, with grading. You actually mentioned that. Uh, but when you start of scaling grading to millions of students, um, that becomes in- interesting. One, one feature they have is uh, anonymized, t- fully anonymized data analysis. So ah. who answers what questions? Like if someone answers question two correctly, what likely, how likely were they to get question three correctly? And then what can we know about question two versus question three? And actually, so, I mean, they're data science people, right? So they wanted to, they wanted yeah. to eat their own dog food, as they say. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of things that you can do, like, um, you know, have the order change every time a different student takes the same, the order of questions change every time yeah. a student takes a different test. Or like, if you've got multiple choice questions, let's say it's always the same for answers for A, B, C, and D, but sometimes it, the same answer will be A, sometimes it'll be B, sometimes it'll be C, so you don't get the old trick of know, yeah. knowing that, like, if you don't know the answer, just put, like, put C because that's where people right. tend to put correct answers because <laughs> they feel bad about putting it first. And they feel bad about putting it last and that, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I mean, if you can't, if you can't think of anything thing right now, uh, please feel free to get in touch uh, yeah. with me anytime because you know, this is something that like, it's, it's a real challenge. Oh, and another, another thing that we know as well. And I think you brought up forums. Mm-hmm. Um, student forums actually are hugely important part of dealing with the scale not just from the perspective yeah. of the people who the instructors for the course, but also the students themselves. Because if there's a million other people who've taken your course, there's a million other people who've potentially written down some advice or asked some question that someone else in the community answered out there. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I, I was going to say the forums as one of them, like a, a practical thing. Um, uh, so I, you know, I've had the chance to do the same course on campus and, uh, and, online and on campus we can have office hours so you know students get one-on-one help it's a conversation about their you know their issue but the forum right it's you know you post your question out there and then maybe someone will answer it tomorrow right (laughs) or maybe never um and so i think and yeah with a million people who have signed up already likely somebody else has already had the same question uh so, yeah, maybe doing something with the forums to make it more of a conversation rather than here's my question. I'm going to be as, you know, as detailed as possible. <laughs> Can you help me is is good. Another thing I wanted to say or sorry, did you have something? No, please go ahead. OK. So, yeah. So another thing I, I wanted to say is uh, with MOOCs, right, uh, I think uh, retaining learners is a big problem. 
and uh, or engaging learners is a big problem and having them stay till the end. Um, while there have been a million enrollments in the course, only about you know five percent have actually finished the course. Um, so, right, the the number is not as impressive at that point. And so there are you know a lot of the MOOCs are trying to figure out how do you how do you keep learners all the way through to the end? And sometimes maybe there's nothing you can do about it, but maybe something like what you mentioned, which is uh, predicting the students' success as they are working on the course is uh, could be motivating, right? Yeah, that's a really great suggestion. Dad. Thanks for sharing that information. Yeah. Um, it's 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 the first thought I had was you know maybe fewer people in the top of the funnel would increase the ratio, but just try convincing someone who runs a web platform to do that, right? Yeah. You know? Like, I, by, by which I mean, if people didn't get the jargon, you know, if you if you signed up, if you stated things at the point where people are deciding whether to sign up for the course differently, uh, you might get fewer people signing up mm -hmm. uh, and a higher proportion finishing because you're basically being more selective in your messaging. Yeah. Um, but people who run platforms want users, users, users. And so <laughs> if you if you were in a meeting with the person in charge of getting users and said, let's get fewer of them, they would say, well, not unless you tie a higher finishing ratio to my, <laughs> to my compensation. Uh, in any case, uh, thank you very much, Anna, for taking the time to do this interview uh, and for covering so much ground. Um, I, I have a tendency to kind of just, I think, sort of seem to ask my next question out of left field. And I apologize if that happened once or twice on this, on this, in, in this interview, but you were very game to answer everything. And I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you. Thanks very much. And thanks as always to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a LeanPub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.